New York loses another gun carry case in federal court, plus an interview with National Review's Robert Verbruggen on the murder spike and serious problems with the FBI's crime group. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our free weekly newsletter today if you want to stay up to date on the latest in gun news from a sober, serious source uh, that doesn't overflow your inbox. We send you one email a week, and uh, it has all the, the most important gun news in America for that week. It helps you stay up to date real real easy like uh and if you want more insight you can also buy a membership and help support our reporting here at the reload we are 100 reader funded and if you buy a membership you'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you will not find anywhere else you'll also get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show like we have this week we have a member uh at the end of the show doing a member segment, my favorite segment. So make sure you stay tuned for that uh, and sign up for a membership if you want to be on the show at some point in the future. But uh, this week, our main guest is Robert Verbruggen from uh, National Review and the Manhattan Institute. Uh, welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself before we start? Sure, yeah, my, my background is in journalism. Um, so I've uh, been writing for, for various outlets, including uh, you know, National Review and, and whatnot, for a long time. Uh, about a year ago, I became a Manhattan Institute fellow. That's my, my main home base these days. I write for, for City Journal and, and write reports for them um, and also kind of cast a broad net and try to, to get my analysis out through as many different outlets as I can, uh, such as appearing on fantastic podcasts like the, the Reload. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the most popular podcast in the world, the Reload, the Weekly Reload podcast, at least when it comes to uh, gun policy, probably. Right. Um, <clears throat> but speaking of which, we are going to be focusing on uh, one of your specialties, an area that you've written about uh, extensively over the last couple of years. <clears throat> and that is the um, gun violence statistics in the United States and sort of how they correlate to uh, gun sales and some of the broader issues that uh, obviously we focus on a lot here at the reload. And uh, I just want to start off with uh, the FBI has released new data for 2021. Um, and it shows a slight increase in gun murder, well, in murder, generally, um, <clears throat> over 2020. But also, uh, uh, there's, uh, they, they say there's, there's significant problems with with their data. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. But basically, through through the year 2020, um, the, the way this works is that police departments submit their data to the FBI, which puts it together and, and uses it to come up with uh, national estimates. Through the year 2020, uh, agencies could choose between two different ways of submitting their data. One was called the summary reporting system. It was basically just a count of how many types of different crimes they dealt with over the past month. You know, they report these on a monthly basis. The other was called the national incident-based reporting system, which is a lot more detailed. It has things about every single incident, including, you know, time of day, um, you know, demographics of the, of the um, you know, victim and perpetrator and so on and so forth. It's just a lot more detailed. Um, but about five years ago, Ago, they decided that they wanted to push everybody into the, the more sophisticated system. And so they made an announcement. Um, they've been doing grants, um, basically trying to get everybody transferred over to the new system. Um, 
but of course the 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 drop dead deadline was 2021 um yes the... which was probably not the best year to do that <laughs> and uh yeah, <laughs> it, it yeah it's I, I, I want to get into the to these issues a little bit more um, a little later in the show, but yeah, they they've decided to make this monumental change in how they report uh, crime statistics right at the moment that we're getting into a crime spike uh, that's unlike anything we've seen in in thirty years it, 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 from all indications. Uh, and speaking of those indications, we also had the CDC numbers come out fairly recently on uh, murder in twenty twenty one. And uh, they showed a, a spike as well. The the gun murder rate, or the sorry, the murder rate. These are different things. I want to be accurate, um, and, and I don't want to confuse anyone here. The murder rate is at a um, decades long high. We're back now. It seems, according to CDC, at least, uh, or homicide rate, I should say, not murder rate, because CDC doesn't. This is one of the issues I'm sure we'll talk about, but they don't. They don't determine uh, the justification of a homicide or, or what kind of homicide is just that a homicide occurred, uh, which is when a human kills another human being. Right. And uh, that rate is now what it was back in the nineties, which is very concerning, of course, because since the nineties, we've been at a much lower homicide rate uh, than, than has traditionally been the case. So uh, can you just talk a little bit about this, just the baseline, what we know, today sure well i mean what i would what i would say is that we have at least three different ways of looking at the the homicide or murder rate um in you know, in the year 2021 one one is this new set of fbi data um that suggests that the murder rate was up about four percent but they have because they have so few um about a third of the population lives in an area whose police department didn't report to the fbi this year so that's a very uncertain uh, estimate. They say it's not even a statistically significant difference, um, but that that's one estimate. The CDC number uh, numbers also have it up about five percent, though. And the CDC has much more comprehensive data because they're what they're doing is tallying up death certificates. Um, the the difference between homicide and murder is important because if you're concerned about, you know, for example, justifiable homicides, the CDC is going to lump those in with other homicides. But the, but the trend lines tend to be very similar, so that also shows about a five percent increase. Um, and you're also seeing a very similar thing out of big cities. So big cities um, oftentimes have uh, more sophisticated data systems and they publish their own data on a, on a monthly basis even. So people um, track track the big city numbers separately um, because they're more up to date. And that's also saying the same thing, which is, you know, it was up a little bit in 2021, even relative to 2020, which was a, a year that we had a massive, about roughly 30% spike in, in murders and homicides, which was, which was right. very bad. So it's up, but it's not the rate of increases slowing, I guess, would be the sort of positive takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I would say that, that the homicide rate exploded in 2020, rose up a little bit more in 2021. And by, by some early indications in 2022, seems to be ticking back down a little bit. Um, but that's something we'll get better information on as the year unfolds. Okay. That, that makes sense. And then let, let's just dive a little bit deeper into these issues with the FBI's numbers, because uh, I think it's very significant, and I, I imagine you agree, because CDC is one thing, you know, that they at least have not changed their methodology, so we have consistent data from them. But but it's, as you said, it's death certificates, so it's basically a coroner's determination as to whether or not someone was, uh, you know, killed by another person or they committed suicide or so, something along those lines. And they don't get into the crime aspects uh, of any of this. They don't make determinations on crimes. They uh, and so the FBI is the one who tracks that that kind of stuff. And that's usually where you go 
to look at crime data in the United States and trends and, and this. Uh, that's where a lot of the numbers everybody's familiar with in the gun debate come from, you know, about because uh, they'll track weapon usage as well. And, and that's why we we know that tr- traditionally only about 500 rifles, which AR-15s are a subcategory of rifles. Everybody's, I'm sure, heard this talking point before, but uh, only about 500 murders a year have been committed with rifles and far more committed with with knives or um, with blunt instruments like bats or even with, uh, I think what the FBI calls them personal weapons, right? Your, which is fists and feet. So uh, that's where those sorts of stats come from. <laughs> and uh, it's really troubling, right? That, that the FBI has really mishandled this transition to their new reporting system because uh, right as we're having this um, incredible change in, in, in well, in murder, at least, or in homicide, because uh, I guess we, should, we maybe should spend a little time talking about the the difference between the homicide rate increasing and, and what's happened with violent crime generally, because they haven't seen the same kind of increases there. But, but you know, the, the, how does this happen? How does the <laughs> FBI mess this up at the worst possible moment, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a combination of um, basically having made this decision – five years ago or so. And what's happened since, I mean, there's, you know, you have the pandemic um, and, and everything that threw everybody off. Um, and it also has to do with this. These are, these always been voluntary systems. So we got to a really good place with the old system where we were getting coverage from about 95% of the population. Um, I, I think the number of the, the percentage of agencies reporting was a bit lower. It was kind of in the 80 to 90% range, but those are mostly smaller agencies that weren't reporting, but the, this is a voluntary system. And we were at a pretty good place with it, um, with the agencies having both options to report their numbers in a simpler way or report it in a more complicated way. And they just ended up uh, picking the absolute worst time to force everybody over. And because it's a voluntary system, you have um, it, uh, a lot of agencies aren't doing it. They don't want to bother with it. They'd, um, it requires a lot of manpower to switch everybody to a new system that's going requires data in a new format, requires more information to be collected about all these crimes. You need to retrain a bunch of people. You might need to upgrade your systems. And there's money available for that, but a lot, a lot of places just haven't gotten around to it. And sometimes the problem has even been at the state level. Um, you know, for example, California, there are, there are a handful of agencies in California that have submitted their data just by themselves. But the, the way that it normally works is that the state agency uh, pulls together all, this, all the information and sends it to the federal government. And that's not happening in California. So you're missing almost the entirety of California, including the uh, LAPD. The NYPD also has not, not reported. So, I mean, this is not Jeez. just a matter of um, some smaller agencies the way it used to be. This is, you know, some entire states are almost entirely missing data. Some huge agencies aren't doing it. It's, it's a total mess. And we're missing about a third of the country this year. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's even worse than I thought. Uh, I mean, California is the most populous state in the country, too. So, geez. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know. What, what does this mean? What does this imply for how we can look at this crime data now? Like, does, uh, you know, obviously uh, there's going to be the political debate over rising homicide rates. It's, it's one of the top issues in the midterms. Uh, it's the gun control groups are are, you know, laying the, the problem at the feet of loose gun laws and and. Republic, you know, the other side is is laying it at the feet of, uh, you know, less aggressive prosecution of crime. Right. But but uh, is there a is there a, a fundamental problem with even trying to judge what effects any of these policies have, given how poor the 
reporting for this data is now? I mean, I think when it comes to homicide specifically, the sort of the silver lining is that homicide is one of the better counted crimes. It's it's tabulated by both the CDC and the FBI, so we can get a sense of from the CDC data what's happening. Um, even mm-hmm. if the CDC isn't measuring exactly what we might want, the, the, the pattern is generally the same. When the FBI measure goes up, the CDC measure goes up. So yeah, I, I think with, with homicide specifically, you can turn and look at other data sources. Um, to me, the, the big um, missing factor, those all these other crimes that they're trying to tabulate, you know, uh, assaults, rapes, theft, all, all you know, a whole bunch of violent property crimes. We just have no idea what happened in 2021 because we don't have a national source on it anymore. It's all. If you look at the their, their report, it's the the gist of it seems to be that that changes seem to have been pretty small between 2020 and 2021. But the the confidence intervals they have are just so wide because they're just missing so much data. They just don't know what happened. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty significant. Uh, although, uh, so I, this conclusion that I, that I mentioned earlier, that violent crime is, is actually not increasing the same level that murder is, has increased. Is that viable or, you know, is that, is that a problem given the reporting? I mean, it seems, I mean, it's, it's, I, I would be hesitant to conclude that just based on the FBI report because it's, you know, frankly trash. It's very bad. Um, but but if you combine, you know, what, what we've seen out of um, individual police departments, I and mean, if you also look at, there's a, there's another recent data release from the Department of Justice or statistical machinery called the National Crime Victimization Survey. It's where they, they survey basically a cross-section of the public, a representative sample, and ask them what their experiences were with crime. That can also give you a sense of, of these trends. Um, and that seems fairly consistent across different measures is that um, for, first of all, in 2020, other violent crimes and property crimes did not rise um, the way that homicide did. And in some cases, it even fell. I mean, especially in 2020, thanks to all the lockdowns and things. Um, and they've, they've been much more steady since. But um, we, we don't have nearly as, as good of data as we would have had if the 2020 data, 2021 data had been collected the way that the 2020 numbers were. Um, and then obviously, uh, the one of the main arguments that you'll hear in regards to crime data and, and firearms of the last several years now um, deals with the correlation between the increasing homicide rate and uh, the increasing number of gun sales uh, in the United States. And, and the argument is that those two things are not just correlated, but also uh, that one is causing the other, in particular, that gun sales increasing led to homicides increasing. You've written about this. Uh, I I mean, I've written about it as well, but I want to hear a little more from you on uh, what you make of this argument. You know, is there any validity to it? Uh, And if not, why not? Um, The way I put it in in a a piece I wrote for National Review about about a year ago now um, is that there's sort of a paradox here because there are two different ways of drilling into that into that correlation. One, one is to look geographically and you can say, look, we had this, this huge surge in gun sales, but different states had, had, had surges in gun sales to different degrees. Um, is there a correlation there? Did the places that saw the biggest spikes in homicide also have the biggest spikes in gun sales? And the answer to that question is no. Um, if you plot the data, those, those numbers against each other, there's just nothing there. Um, <clears throat> there's no geographic correlation there. Um, but another good data source that helps us get at that question is the ATF's gun trace data. Um, unfortunately, those aren't broken down as finely as, as we would like them to be, but you can see 
in those numbers, um, what percentage of, of guns that were traced by police departments um, had been purchased recently. And, and those numbers, in fact, shot up at the same time. So, so it seems that newer guns are being more likely to be traced by police departments, but it does not appear that the places where the guns are being sold are the places where they're seeing homicide spikes. So um, I came up with what I think is a sort of a reasonable theory to reconcile those uh, two things, which is that you actually had two different things going on there. Um, one, one is that you have the, the pandemic and the riots, and that, that causes a lot of people to be scared and they run out and buy guns. Um, these are the illegal gun purchases. Overwhelmingly, they don't really have anything to do with crime. They're by law-abiding people who are passing, passing background checks. Um, but at the same time, you have this this uh, dramatic surge in violence. And when there's a, a surge in violence like that, you're going to have criminals being more likely to search out guns. And one way they search out guns is by trafficking them. So that there, there's going to be a surge in newly newly bought guns that are showing up at crimes. But it, it, isn't not, it isn't necessarily part of the same phenomenon as just sort of this generalized surge in gun buying. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's interesting uh, sort of uh, explanation for both of those pieces of data because you're right that the trace data is interesting uh, in that it does show there was some increase in um, how quickly a gun went from a sale to to you know the, what the ATF calls time to crime uh, which is how quickly it went from being sold to being covered in at a crime scene although like you said there isn't there's isn't any breakdown on what kind of crime scene it was or, or why the ATF recovered it, um, anything like that. So uh, it's not really granular in the way that like the FBI's crime data is supposed to be. But, but um, I, you know, I thought that the sort of an inherent flaw in in this. Uh, I mean, to me, there were two points that that matter quite a lot, um, which is that the reason we know that gun sales increased is because the, the way you track that is through, uh, as you briefly mentioned there. Uh, the number of FBI background checks uh, that were conducted through the Nationalist Criminal Background Check System, and um, which means that in order to obtain the gun in the first place, you have to not have a criminal record. Now, obviously, uh, as you pointed out, uh, you can use straw purchasers, basically people who don't have criminal records but are buying guns for people with criminal records, uh, intentionally doing that. Um, uh, you know, you, you can still have some percentage of those people who passed the background check where their gun ultimately ends up in a crime quickly because of trafficking. But, uh, but you know, you still have time to crime at, um, I believe it was eight years last time I looked, it might be slightly less than that now, but I don't think the time has come down on average uh, very much. The median time to crime is not, uh, is, is, has not significantly dropped. Um, over these last two years, as you would expect, if all of the new gun sales were going straight into committing homicides. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, I think there's a, a number of issues with this concept that because gun sales rose at the same time that homicides rose, that it must, that the gun sales must be causing the homicides. And in fact, and I think you wrote, you've written about this a little bit, it, it may well be the other way around. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's uh, one thing. Um, 
as a gun owner, you, you know, I'm sure, and I'm sure you've heard it, heard it from plenty of other people. One of the biggest reasons people aim for buying a gun is that they're <clears throat> they're looking to defend themselves. And when you have rising crime, when you have rising homicide rates, and you have just generally scary things happening, like the pandemics and the riots of 2020, you want to protect yourself. So that's that's a, that's an obvious driver of the, the the gun sale spike. So it's it's very difficult to uh, sort out statistically, you know, which direction the causation runs sometimes. Yeah, and I would say too that uh, in 2020, the the largest relative increase in monthly gun sales, as judged through NICS checks, was actually in June, not in March. March is the March 2020 has was the uh, had the most gun related background checks of, in history, and that's obviously when the onset of the pandemic and the lockdowns occurred. But June 2020 had a larger relative increase from a normal June because June is the summer months. Gun sales are cyclical. So they go, uh, there's a certain cycle. You, they, they pick up in the fall. Usually Black Friday is the largest gun sales day of the year, uh, traditionally. And then they, you know, the, there's hunting season starts at that time as well. Um, and then they, they, you know, they move through the spring, winter and spring, and they're relatively strong times. And spring's pretty strong because that's the like model year end. Uh, so there's more bargains generally. And uh, and then it, it tapers off in, in summer. But in June of 2020, there was a, a huge spike in, in sales that was uh, also happened to be around the time that we saw that uh, George Floyd was murdered. And then there were protests, in, which of course, um, oftentimes ended in rioting that, that, uh, you know, spread across the country. So, um, you know, there, there, there seems like fairly obvious, uh, at least correlation, I guess you'd have to do a little more to prove causation, uh, just like the other way around. Yeah. But, so sometimes um, common sense, I think gets you pretty far <laughs> as, as in that case. Right. Yeah. Whereas there's a number of common sense reasons to think that the gun sales spike did not uh, is not the catalyst for the gun murder or, or the, the homicide rate spike. Uh, because again, you know, the people who were buying those guns were passing background checks to do it. That's how we know there was a spike. There may have been a spike. There probably was, as you, as you mentioned, uh, a spike in criminal gun sales as well. Like the number of illegal sales to people who can't own guns, but that would be something that's not tracked necessarily by the, the number of NICS checks done. Right. Because, uh, right. you know, it, that's criminals don't go into gun stores buy guns because they won't be able to actually pass the background check. But they'll go to, you know, the person that they know who has guns and is willing to sell them to them or give them. I mean, uh, you know, oftentimes gangs will use it's almost like a gun library. You know, they pass the guns around between each other to whoever needs them at whatever moment. So, uh, and obviously, criminal, as, as you sort of, alluded to there, a lot of the criminal motivations for carrying guns are not just to um, commit criminal acts, you know, robberies or, or what have you, but oftentimes criminals carry the guns for the same reasons that anyone else would carry them, which is self-defense. They feel they're, that, that they are in danger and they want to carry guns, even if they're not allowed to um, under law. And so, yeah, those at times where violence spikes, it wouldn't be a surprising thing to, to find that criminals tend to arm themselves more often, uh, you know, more, on a more regular basis at those times. 
right? Yeah, that, that that's it's, I think that's basically the gist of my theory. Is that you have you have two different things going on. You have you have people people lawfully trying to arm themselves because the world has gotten really scary, and then you also have criminals trying to arm themselves because the world's gotten really scary. And they're they're, they're two different phenomena to a large extent. Because uh, in one case you have people going in and, and buying the guns and passing background checks, and in the other case you have uh, you know criminals trying to procure guns, kind of however. However, whatever way they can. And sometimes those are going to overlap where the criminals get newer guns because you know, they were able to steal a gun that had just been purchased or there's a straw purchasing situation or, or what have you. Um, but I think that's a way of reconciling these, these two facts where there doesn't seem to be a geographical link between the gun sales and the homicide spike, but there does seem to be this surge of um, recently purchased guns being, uh, being traced by the police. So. Yeah, and I would also... I, I wonder uh, about your, your, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, obviously during that, that lull in, um, you know, the homicide rate in the United States, we, you know, we used to have very high homicide rates in the eighties and nineties. Uh, and they came down in the early two thousands and they've stayed relatively low up until just recently here. And uh, during that period, uh, I mean, especially, you know, the, say the Obama administration, right? The gun sales picked up dramatically uh, from, you know, 2008 to 2016, especially after uh, the Sandy Hook shooting in 2013, or uh, when people were concerned that there would be new restrictions on gun ownership. There were, uh, it was a huge spike in gun sales, but we didn't see a corresponding spike in the homicide rate at that point. Uh, you know, what do you make of, of that? Like, is that further evidence that there isn't really a causal link between gun sales through the background check system and um, and, the, and the homicide rate generally. I mean, at minimum, I would say it shows that it's, it's very complicated. I think a lot of people who are very fervent gun control act activists see it as a sort of one-step solution to our, to our murder problem. Um, and, but there's just very clearly not a one-to-one -one relationship between, you know, gun control laws or gun sales and homicide. You know, over, over the 1990s, a lot of states were, uh, uh, liberalizing their concealed carry laws. That was the biggest drop in homicide I think we've ever seen. Um, and, and uh, yeah, there was a continued lull through the 2010s as well as you know, gun ownership was rising. And, and going so, off of that, actually, um, you know, you'll see some gun rights advocates argue the opposite direction, right? Like, like you mentioned there, there was a liberalization of gun carry laws at the very least in the nineties uh, through the two thousands. And, you know, a similar time period that we saw a decrease in, in the homicide rate. Is, is that enough evidence to conclude that that's, there's a causal uh, relationship there too, or like, how, how do you view these things? I mean, I would say no. And uh, I'm actually working on a report right now that goes through some of the concealed carry literature. Um, so I've been looking at this pretty closely. Um, but but the states that never uh, implemented uh, concealed carry at all saw some of the biggest drops that anybody saw um, over that period. And what do you mean? Like, uh, uh, the, the, what do you the, mean by never implemented? Well, I, I, basically, I, what I, what I did um, for my report is I sorted out states based on when they implemented concealed carry with the... the um, the states that never implemented it through Bruin. Um, I mean, like treatments. May issue states. So like, yeah, York, May issue states. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so on and so forth. Okay. Um, but, but they saw as big a drops as anybody saw. Um, there's no, I don't think there's any clear relationship between implementing concealed carry and seeing especially big drops in, in, in homicide. Mm -hmm. So, so when you start the data out that, that way, I think it's more of just sort of a null, a null result. There doesn't seem to be a big effect in either direction. Mm. Okay. 
Um, and, and so uh, going off of that, I wonder uh, what, what, what is there in the data that we can look at to understand this recent spike in homicide? Like what, you know, is it caused by the, the pandemic, the, the lockdowns, the, the mental stress, the financial distress of the, the, you know, markets crashing at least for a while. And what, what, what do you, is there anything that we can look at now if it's not, you know, the gun sales surge, if it's, if it's not, um, you know, related to that, what, what, what's a better place to look for causation? Yeah, I actually had a, a report with my colleague Christos Macridis earlier this year. <clears throat> it's called Breaking Down the 2020 Homicide Spike. Um, and we, we looked at a bunch of different variables. Um, one sort of distressing thing is that homicide basically rose for everybody. Um, and it especially targeted, uh, you know, groups and places where homicide rates were already high. So for example, if you look at it, you break it down by race, blacks saw a much bigger increase than whites did on, in, in raw terms. Um, uh, and similarly for Native like, Americans as well, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. Um, you know, large uh, uh, central city areas, very urban areas, saw, saw a bigger increase as well because they already had a higher increase. So basically, if, if, if the homicide rate increases 30% for everybody, but you're starting out with a much higher homicide rate, a 30, even if you have the same 30% increase, that's going to be, be way bigger. So that, that was the distressing thing about it. But one interesting thing in terms of, of causes, though, is, is the timeline of it. Um, if you look at the 2020 month-by-month -month tallies from the CDC of homicides, um, it, the year actually didn't get out to, off to a great start to begin with. Even January and February were a bit, were a little bit higher than, than, than the previous average. Um, but it, it starts to go up a little bit after the pandemic, and then it really explodes in the summer. I think, I think the, the key... Um, uh, Incident was was the George Floyd uh, murder and the, the resulting uh, you know protests and riots. I think it had a really profoundly demoralizing impact on on police and, and urban areas, and I think that was it was very bad for those areas. So it's uh, so you're you're more partial to this idea that uh, of like a police pullback that that after the protests and the riots, police were less inclined to uh, you know uh, take risks uh, enforcing the law or, or what have you and. And perhaps that um, resulted in uh, more lawlessness, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's a dynamic process where you have people who are, you know, first of all, legitimately angry about what happened to, to George Floyd. There's a lot of anger, mm -hmm. anger that spills over right. there. Uh, and then you know, it spills over into riots and the police aren't able to control the riots. <clears throat> um, so you have the, I, I think these twin effects of sort of emboldening criminals and while cowing the police because they, they don't want to be um, – they don't want to see themselves as a, in a viral video, for example. Um, and, and I think that's been a very consistent pattern. Uh, Rowan Fryer and Tamaya Debbie had a really interesting study a couple of years back looking at a lot of cities that had had viral incidents like that. And it's it's a very consistent pattern that when you have one of those viral incidents, uh, police pull back and crime goes way up. It's it's a right. like, don't they call that the Ferguson effect or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that was a. Uh, um, yeah, that, 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 that's a, a term that goes back about five years. It was popularized by my colleague Heather McDonald, but I think it was a, mm -hmm. I think it was a Missouri police chief who used it initially. So that's um, to you that there's more evidence in the data for that sort of effect than there is for you know gun sales or or even uh, I mean, um, but I, I guess one one critique of that uh, that I've heard that I'm, I'm interested in your take on is. That you know the, the violence or the, the homicide rate increased everywhere. It's not just in those big cities, right? Uh, although, as you noted, the you know the thirty percent increase when you've got already got two hundred murders a year is going to be much larger than uh, if you only have a couple murders a year. But um, 
you know, should, why, why is this effect happening in places that, for instance, don't have, you know, progressive um, prosecutors or, or um, that uh, never bought into the idea of the defund the police movement or something like along those lines. Like, why is this having an effect there? Yeah, no, that, that's a totally fair, fair point. I, I don't think it's a it's a 100 percent total explanation, but I think it, mm. it goes a long way to explaining a lot of what happened, especially in the in the bigger cities that saw enormous increases. Mm. And so what uh, <laughs> I don't know, do you have any policy suggestions as possible solutions uh, you know, for this, if it's not, if it's, you know, if it's not a gun sales related problem, um, and if it's, it's not even necessarily a prosecute, you know, a soft on crime prosecutor problem, it's more of this sort of cultural issue of, of police being less, uh, being more uh, concerned about public image, I guess is one way to put it, um, you know, what, what's the solution to something like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of the solution is, um, you know, um, prosecution policy and things, things like that, making sure that you're incapacitating people who've, you know, been violent repeatedly. I think that's very important. Mm. Um, I, I wouldn't downplay that. Um, I also uh, had, had a different report about, about a year or so ago now, I think, um, called Deep Policing and What to Do About It, where I tried to take on that question. <clears throat> And the bottom line is that it's extremely difficult. Um, you can't you can't force police to be active when they don't want to be because it's so much of their job is subjective. Like if they get a call and they have to go to a certain place to deal with a crime, they'll do that. But it's very hard. Um, you know, quotas are just outright illegal in most places. They're heavily frowned upon. They, they police don't like them. The public doesn't like them. You can't you right. can't for so, good reason. Yeah, yeah. you can't you can't tell people you have to make so many so many arrests or stops or whatever each year. Um, <clears throat> some of the things I hit on is I think it is important to. Um, it's important to hold police accountable, but it's also important to support good police and ensure uh, assure police that they're going to be treated fairly if something happens. Uh, I think that we could do a lot more in that regard. I think um, some of the statements by public officials uh, basically tearing down the cops as soon as something happens without waiting to find out what happened first, I think were really bad. Um, avoiding avoiding things like that is important. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right that it's, it's that specific problem is very difficult to solve. And even solving that problem, I don't think would address everything because, you know, as you mentioned, it homicide is up everywhere. It's not just the areas that have, um, you know, really strong defund the police movements. It's it's really kind of taken hold across the country now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a good answer, honestly, because uh, it's, it's just these are not simple problems no. and they're not going to have simple solutions. I would, I'd expect. And, and that's where, like, I always am extremely skeptical of people who want to tell me that there's a very easy solution to some major societal problem, because uh, I, I doubt it's true. I mean, it seems like there is a that we've we had come up with a um, with a, with a better approach to this, given the results of the last 30 years. But, um, you know, how we get back to that point is another question uh, we have to you know i mean even figuring out exactly what went wrong uh, i think it's going to take a little while to do and uh, i mean i think you're what you've said is there's there's a lot of uh, sense in it um uh, but but of course there's uh, uh there's a lot to this to this issue for sure um and so uh what do you what are you expecting to see i mean are, are moving forward now you said that 2022 thus far, you know, the major city data we've seen, uh, there's a decrease in, in the homicides. Yeah. Um, but, but not as, 
a massive one, right? We're not getting back down to the levels we had been at, are we? No, we're not back to 2019 levels. Um, I, I, I would certainly hope that we see at, at least a gradual decline back toward where we were. Um, but the thing is, uh, you, lately, as you mentioned, there's this huge, huge decline in the 1990s, kind of stagnation, a little bit further decline in the, in the 2010s. <clears throat> um, and then, you know, in 2015, you know, with Ferguson and everything, we saw, saw homicide rates tick back up. And then in 2020, we had them you know, really, really rise again. Um, I'm just hoping we don't see something like that again, because it seems like every few years we have we have these sorts of issues, you know, especially with the you know, viral viral policing videos. Um, that that go nationwide and really seem to wreak havoc on on murder rates, which is which is terrible for everybody. So, yeah, I mean, I guess there's it seems like there's a societal push and pull when it comes to uh, you know crime and policing. I mean, I guess it's always been there, but uh, perhaps we're with the rise of viral videos uh, of of poor police conduct, uh, it, coupled with uh, a lot of false allegations of of bad policing, you know, that we've seen that happen a number. I mean, that's Kenosha was, is probably a good example of that where the incident that sparked those riots. Um, I think a lot of people would say it was not uh, an example, uh, not a good example of bad policing, at least no, uh, given no. the, the circumstances and the, you know, the, the, there was a domestic violence call where the, uh, the suspect who was shot was reaching for a knife at the time that he was shot, but it got even Ferguson, uh, itself would be another uh, highly questionable one at the very least. There's, oh, yeah. there's yeah. not video evidence of that, but it's, there's uh you know, there was a whole narrative about, um, you know, uh, Brown's hands being up when he was shot that, that turned out not to be accurate um, and drove a lot of the anger surrounding that one. But of course, at the same time, you know, the, the, the George Floyd, sh there's no, there's no good defense of that uh, no. that I've ever seen anyone make um, and that, you know, watching the video for yourself, <laughs> it's very clear. Um, so, you know, and, and obviously that's coupled with a long history of, of poor treatment of minorities by police um, in, in American cities. I mean, it's not, you know, the, there's, these are legitimate problems. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's sort of a push pull that goes on between, in society between like what's acceptable and what's not. And, and, uh, you know, I, I guess we're on the, uh, we're still leveling back out to, uh, to, <laughs> uh, it's hard to even articulate this. Like, uh, you know, uh, there's a reaction, maybe there's an overreaction and then it comes back to a more reasonable point, uh, as far as how police are expected to perform their jobs. And then, something negative happens and then there's an overreaction and then a retraction. You know, I don't know. That seems to be the pattern that you're, you're uh, alluding to there, right? Yeah. I, I think that's about right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it, it is so frustrating that you can have, you know, a totally legitimate, uh, you know, protest about something that was, that was completely bad. And you, you can have the same reaction sometimes to, um, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned situations where cops behaved appropriately. Um, but you know, mm -hmm. whoever's, maybe it's not clear in the video or there isn't a video and, and the narrative yeah. gets started and, and, and you can have the same sort of societal wide problems out of it. I guess it's, it's hard when you've, uh, have so little trust between the community and, and it's police. Yeah. Right. And, and where there's just a sort of an assumption that there's uh that what was done is was not um acceptable and and that's based on perhaps you know lived experience that's you know justifies a lack of trust in in some neighborhoods in some cases right but uh, yeah but at the same time a lot of 
I mean, a lot of uh, polling indicates that, uh, um, you know, minority neighborhoods and cities don't don't necessarily want a pullback of policing. They exactly. Want, they want good policing. Uh, and so it's hard because, uh, you know, what what is I just think it's uh, like you said, it's a complicated problem that isn't an easy, easy solution to like everybody wants uh, competent policing. Uh, and it, it but not everyone agrees on exactly what that means, even if we can agree on the extreme examples of it, you know, what it doesn't mean. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You, it sounds like you think the decline is going to continue. Uh is that is that your impression or do you th- like I, I just wonder if we've reached a new level like where it's going to remain this high for a while uh, until something changes? I, I don't know. Yeah, po- possibly naively. I'm I'm encouraged by the, the, the decline thus far in, in what little data we have from 2022. So, um, hmm. yeah, don't don't bookmark that. Don't bookmark this conversation and call me on it in, in two years. But um, but yeah, I, well, I'm hopefully hopeful. you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I, I I hope that you're right. I, I I would like to believe that this isn't an anomalous situation, right? That we're not going to start seeing the homicide rates as high as they were in the the early to mid '90s. But yeah, but um, you know, obviously we have to have a lot more data on that before we and reliable data, which unfortunately we're not really getting uh, before we can make that conclusion. So we'll, we'll have to keep following your writing, I guess is the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so where can people do that? Um, well, uh, I, I'm a regular contributor to city journal, which is the Manhattan Institute's publication. Um, I still write from, for national review here and there. Um, and I have a, a Manhattan Institute page that, um, compiles all my writing from, from different sources. So. Wonderful. And, and national review, right? Yep. You're over at the corner. Um, I'm, at the, I'm a contributing editor there. So yeah, I write for the corner every once in a while and, and contribute pieces and, and so on and so forth. And you're on Twitter as well, correct? Oh, of course I'm on Twitter. <laughs> Where can people follow you on Twitter? Because I follow you. Well, it's R.A. Verbruggen is my uh, my handle. So R-A-V-E-R-B-R-U-G-G-E-N. Awesome. Well, hopefully when we have a little more insight into the situation, more data you know, in the future, we'll have you back on the show and, and talk about it again. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are you, Steve? I'm doing good. Jake, how you doing? Doing pretty good. Uh, we, big are news you, and, though? Yeah, well, last night? <laughs> oh, we don't have to talk about my, my Broncos. <laughs> Everyone saw I'm how pathetic that performance was. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm an Eagles fan. I'm just not doing good after watching that last night. So. <laughs> you used to watching high-quality football. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That yeah. is, boy. You know, those warnings of uh, the, the President Biden gave of Armageddon. Initially, I was very concerned. But then I watched that, that game and I was like, all right, it's fine. Sweet relief. <laughs> Bring on the global thermonuclear war. Yeah, we're feeling that too. to live anymore after watching <laughs> a full game and overtime of that. Whatever that <laughs> right. was. A kicker battle. <laughs> but anyways, we, uh, we have, you had a big story this week. Um, a, a huge court ruling in federal court uh, on New York's Bruin response bill. Um, if you want to tell us what happened uh, with that decision. Yeah. Well, New York told the federal courts, uh, you know, thank you, sir. May I have another? And and they they got their second serving here. They, <laughs> the federal district judge, uh, Sudeby, issued a temporary restraining order against 
nearly all of the controversial portions of the new um, gun carry regime that that the state passed early, earlier this year in response to Bruin. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, it's all the stuff that you kind of would, would expect to be blocked. You know, the the Times Square ban, you know, there's they created a whole section of the city that they consider Times Square even blocks and blocks away from what everyone would consider to be Times Square and made that off limits. He blocked that. He blocked <clears throat> um, the he basically gutted the good moral character clause, which allowed a lot of subjective um, inference by the permitting officials uh, on whether or not somebody has a good moral character. Uh, he basically said, you can't you can't enforce this unless you make it into an objective standard and you have to use the preponderance of evidence. And uh, he added a bunch of preconditions to that. Uh, he he blocked the requirements that applicants submit their social media uh, history and uh, said that that's not historically grounded. You know, he's using the Bruin standard. So he's, he's going through and doing historical analysis of all these regulations, trying to find analogies uh, back in the founding era. And, and for the vast majority of them, he couldn't find any uh, of course, because they, uh, didn't exist. Interestingly, this judge is fascinating to me and how he's handled this whole case. This is the same judge, right? Uh, and you wrote about this back uh, when it happened initially, but the, he dismissed the first attempt at this case uh, on the grounds that the plaintiffs didn't have standing. But <clears throat> he went through and basically litigated the case anyway on the merits and then and told the plaintiffs how they could get standing, basically, right? <clears throat> and so then they did that and now he's he's uh, blocked this law and and he's um he's gone through here in, in this decision and done all of the research to try and find historical analogs for these laws or these provisions because New York refused to do that apparently yeah yeah he even includes that in the opinion he talks about I noticed that the defendants didn't bother doing any of the briefing to do historical right. analogs, but I'm going to right. do it for you here. <laughs> right. It's, <clears throat> I don't know. Well, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a, uh, a judge do, you know, do a case like this. I'm not a lawyer. So, uh, you know, keep that in mind, but I <laughs> followed a lot of federal cases and, uh, I've never seen one quite like this, how the judge, uh, Sotheby has, has, performed in this case because he, he's kind of like giving advice to both sides of this issue and trying to do their work for them almost um, <clears throat> in some ways. He, in fact, even at some points, he literally rewrites the law. Uh, he's, he's, you know, if you, can, you can't enforce this provision unless you include, uh, for instance, churches. There was a total ban on having, uh, you know, carrying a gun into a church anywhere in the state. And he said that's, you know, doesn't comport with the Constitution unless you add an exception for um, people who are duty bound to protect the church. So, like, if you have a, somebody who's pointed your congregation's security guard or something, they, they can carry a gun. Uh, or if they live at, at the church on premises, so I guess, you know, the pastor uh, in some circumstances, they can, they can carry a gun. Um, 
and so he's literally changing the the way these laws are, are written. And then at one point he <clears throat> he blocks one of the provisions and then writes out literally in the opinion how they should rewrite it to be uh, uh, in compliance with the Bruin ruling. So it's pretty yeah. fascinating. But he, yeah, so he strikes, he, he blocks enforcement of temporarily, at least as a temporary restraining order that he's issued, um, the vast majority of the controversial uh, opinions, including uh, the provision where they tried to flip uh, on its head private property rules. So New York had tried to make it a crime to carry a gun on any uh, private property, including businesses, you know, public businesses, uh, unless that business posted a sign saying that guns were allowed. And the judge found that this was, uh, there was no historical uh, analog to a regulation like this, and that it also dealt with issues of compelled speech. And, um, you know, it was taking the decision out of the hands of the businesses since they'd already been able to bar people from carrying on their property if they had wanted to. Um, and so he blocked that provision, which was a significant one. This one we talked to uh, uh, Professor Robert Leiter at, at George Mason University. That was one of his biggest concerns. So that got blocked. Um, a lot of the permitting requirements, you know, the re requiring people to give their uh, list, their family members that live with them, um, for some reason, and uh, requiring them to have in-person meetings with the permitting authorities, you know, all, all these things got struck down in, in the ruling, <clears throat> as well as the vast majority of the controversial gun-free zones that were that were put up, right? Uh, so, so they didn't strike down the entire law or, or block the enforcement of the entire law. Uh, you know, you can, you still allowed, you know, reference, uh, reference requirements for the application process. He's still allowing, you know, um, the gun bans at permitted events uh, run by the government. So, uh, you know, parades and things like that um, or protests was another one that that's probably one of the more controversial ones that actually was allowed to stand as the a ban on carrying at protests. Uh, all together. So, uh, but, you know, think uh, carrying where the alcohol is saw, uh, served that got blocked, which is, that's actually an interesting one because a lot of states have that uh, provision or something pretty similar to it. Right. <clears throat> Some states will do it only for bars where, you know, the majority of revenue comes from alcohol sales or something like that. But uh, he, he found there was no historical analog for regulation like that. So uh, that, that could have further reaching implications uh, beyond just New York and some of these copycat laws that, that are being considered in, you know, California and elsewhere, but, you know, a pretty significant ruling, right? And you wrote <clears throat> an analysis on uh, what exactly it means, right? Right. In the immediate future here. Yeah. So, so he, as you said, he did put a block on this law, but he actually stayed that block for three days to give basically New York officials a chance to decide if they want to appeal or not. Right. And That's sure enough, to know. Sure yeah. enough, before the end of the day, they filed an appeal with the second circuit. Um, so as of right now, all of the law is still in effect because the block hasn't gone taken effect yet. Um, so we'll have to see what the second circuit does, whether or not they accept the appeal. And then once they do how they're going to handle the restraining order. So that's important to note. Um, 
just yeah, I mean, it, that's uh, this is kind of one of the sad realities, I guess, if you're a gun rights advocate, is that even though you got this good ruling, it might not actually have a practical practical right. effect uh, immediate, you know, in the near future or ever, you know, depending on what the Second Circuit actually does. Right. Um, now, uh, I would imagine that if the Second Circuit reverses his ruling, that gives uh, Gun Owners of America and the other plaintiffs in this case a sort of clear path back to the Supreme Court, which I would imagine is going to be more willing to take a case like this um, sure. on a, a expedited basis, given that it's the law is just that as he keeps going, you read this ruling and he keeps going through it. And it's like basically saying, did you even read Bruin? <laughs> he keeps citing Bruin over and over again. Like, right. Look, here's, they said this stuff. It's not, why did you do that? Right. Like, this is obviously not going to to stand. Um, and, but, and so I, I would guess the Supreme Court would, would want to act on a wall like this. Right. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the bigger portions, regardless of what happens with the TRO, between this ruling and then his previous one where he ended up dismissing the suit, but he still did a pretty much a full analysis of the law anyway, uh, are two of the most thorough post-Bruin legal analyses that we've seen some of the other TROs that we've covered in the past, like the assault weapons bans in Colorado cities, a couple, very short, there's a couple pages basically saying, yeah, I don't, I don't think this comports and we'll just kick it and we'll see what happens as further proceedings take place. Whereas judge Sotheby here, these are 50 plus page TROs where he's going step by step by step applying how he sees Bruin, uh, applying, which I think is going to be crucial because, you know, we're still in the very nascent stages of, of the, the post-Bruin world of Second Amendment litigation. So there's not a ton to go off of just yet. So the more federal courts there are that are applying this stuff, the more you get a body of case law to, to for future litigation. I think that's where this is, the, the biggest uh, impact of this will come. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, you know, Bruin is still in its infancy, essentially, as a, a standard for how to side these cases. And now Sotheby's going to, his ruling is going to be one of the, very first to dive into the, this, the type of historical analysis that the court is looking for, uh, the Supreme Court is looking for. And so I think it makes it pretty influential. Uh, that's, or that's my guess as to how this is going to turn. It's probably going to be, as you wrote uh, in your piece, um, a pretty influential uh, piece of case law because there's just not a lot of other right. uh, examples of, of judges doing this work, you know, uh, and uh, we've seen a little bit of it in Texas, right, with the, uh, the, the felon indictment ban being sh struck down by a federal judge there. Uh, but he, and he, you know, he did some of the historical analysis. This one deals with a, a much broader look, you know, he, he's looking at all sorts of different prohibitions on gun carry in here and trying to, and honestly, giving it his best shot at finding on his own without help from defense, which really he doesn't need to do. This is the other thing about his ruling that's pretty interesting is like the New York didn't present him any of the historical evidence that he actually relies on in his ruling. Um, he went out and did all this research on his own. And, uh, you know, New York wanted more time to consult with historians and so forth. Um, and, and decided not to even make a case based on Bruin, which is, which has been really common actually for these 
federal cases so far. A lot of the government uh, attorneys just have not defended these laws under the Bruin standard uh, in any sort of substantial way. We haven't seen any like coherent argument about why most of these regulations are, are permissible under this new standard. It's like they're trying to ignore the new standard almost, um, which has not worked so far, clearly. Uh, you have what, two federal judge rulings that's, that have upheld uh, gun laws under the new Bruin standard, you know, very, very limited rulings. And then you have, what, five or six now that have that have uh, blocked laws under the same reasoning. And in all of those cases, outside of uh, pointing to surety laws uh, in some of the, in the San Jose insurance case and the felon indictment cases, there hasn't really been any attempt to do the historical analysis right. that's required under Bruin from, from the defense. So he, this judge went out of his way to do it for them, basically. He did all the research himself from what he says, and he, he came up with, the, you know, at least some reasonable historical analogs to some of these restrictions that exist. Like, he went out and found laws from the era. Now, most of the regulations and, and laws that he cites are from, you know, the late 19th century that are right on the cusp of that sort of 14th Amendment era that the Supreme Court talks about with the the Bruin test, you know, you're supposed to be somewhere between the founding era and the the era of the 14th Amendment, because the 14th Amendment is what they use to incorporate the Second Amendment to this protections to the states, because we're talking about the federal constitution here, right? But so he, you know, he he's actually able to find some regulations that do mirror some of the uh, less controversial, at least portions of the New York law. Um, uh, it's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't do a full historical analysis of everything. There is, uh, there are a couple sections like uh, school, you know, banning guns at schools and um, government buildings, you know, court houses, where he just relies on dicta from Heller and Bruin that say, well, uh, this is presumptively okay. He doesn't try to do the historical analysis for those. He just kind of skips over them because the Supreme Court already said they were comfortable with it. Uh, but he does for the rest of them. He goes through and if he can't find his own historical backing, he blocks the law or, and if he can, but it's not a perfect fit, he kind of modifies the law in a couple <laughs> of cases, or at least modifies enforcement of it. Uh, I guess he, his thoughts seem to be like, well, if, if uh, there is a way to constitutionally enforce this provision, you can do it that way, but only that way is sort of his, what he was ordering them to do. But um, yeah, so it, it's been interesting to watch the, the early back and forth and how the, the government side has really not put up much of a fight, but a lot of judges have kind of gone out of their way to do the work on their own. Uh, anyway, like it seems to me he could have just blocked everything if they because the 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 state just refused to even give him anything to go off of, but he decided not to and decided to do his own historical inquiry, uh, which which produced uh, pretty good results if you're a gun rights advocate. But again, as you noted, 
we're still going to have to wait and see what the Second Circuit actually does with this case. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll we'll have certainly a lot more of this over at the reload in in the coming days and weeks, where we look, uh, where we track this case and look a little bit closer at, at this decision and how important it is. But but that's it for this week's news update. We're going to head over to uh, my favorite segment now, the member interview. All right, it's time for my favorite segment that we do here on the podcast, a member segment. We have Alan from New York City, who's a Reload member, joining us today. How are you doing, Alan? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for thanks for reaching out to, to come on. Just a reminder, everyone, if you're a member of the Reload, you have the opportunity to come on and do one of these segments on the podcast if you want. It's just a little personal interview, try to get to know our members better, try to get to know the people who make the reload possible, literally, because that's our uh, one source of funding is membership. So, um, uh, you know, speaking of which, uh, what's uh, what's your background with guns, Alan? How, how did you start? Uh, oh, well, do you own any guns? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It took me about uh, 14 months to get my uh, long gun permit in New York City. So I finally... Wow. Uh, purchased my Beretta 1301 tactical uh, in Marine Two Tone, actually. So it's, I Ooh. got to shoot it at a shotgun class earlier last month. It was, That's a nice gun. That's a nice shotgun. <laughs> for first, how do you like it? It is it it is wonderful. Uh, I yeah. love shooting it, and um, I think in my shotgun class, we were seven of the eight of us were running 1301s of various types. Um, right. the, the only one gentleman who didn't have one was a, had an old Benelli pump from like the eighties and he was okay. very jealous of us. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> nice. So, yeah. uh, is that for, do you use that for like, um, you know, range shooting or home defense? Oh. What would you, what was your idea in getting that Beretta? Well, uh, I think the general idea was this is, it would be very versatile. Like originally mm-hmm. the, I will pushed me into getting my permit finally was like, I think in 2021, I think it was right after the Atlanta spa shootings with the mm. anti-Asian animus stuff. But then obviously over the course of the 14 months of waiting, the fear kind of dissipated because it's like, well, yeah, I, I couldn't have anything for 14 months. So now it's yeah. definitely more of a back to a marksmanship sport shooting interest now. I don't think I've always okay. been fairly interested in guns. I think it's just part of living in America, you get all that cultural osmosis and all that. Sure. Except that sure. if you live in New York City, you just don't get to be part of that until like it's much harder. Yeah. 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 So so you're a relatively new gun owner then. Right. This year. But I've like shot um firearms on and off like at various stages of my life. Which is the irony is I think I shot my first twenty two in China at a police range. I don't even think oh, I was really? supposed to be there, but I think, you know, with all the early two thousands corruption i don't know who knows but uh whatever my dad did we got in right or it's just legal to do that i have no Mm -hmm. idea and so how long have you uh lived in the u.s when did you move here and when did you move to new york i basically i was i moved here when i was three years old uh but my parents were citizens when they gave birth so i was still technically native born uh but i've been living in new york city for like basically did my entire life ever since I moved here with the exception of two years in Jersey city because mm. of rent. It's much more affordable to move out to Jersey city for a while. Uh, yeah. I bet. Than, yeah. Um, and I had considered getting a Jersey FID at the time, but I was like, if I'm moving back, well, it's going to take like months just to get a New York city permit. It's not gonna, why bother with a Jersey city one. Cause at the time 
Jersey City was also running a, the same extra requirements on top of the mm. state police requirements. Uh, I noticed before, like I think a hand JRPC did something and forced them all into compliance. But you know, right. it's all a little annoying to say the least. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting to have somebody on from that you know this part of the country, New York, New Jersey, where gun ownership is much more difficult than most of the rest of the country, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Virginia, where I live, uh, or Pennsylvania, where I was originally from, mm -hmm. you know, you can, as long as you don't have a record, uh, a criminal record that disqualifies you or a mental health record that disqualifies you, you can go into a gun store and buy uh, even a handgun same day, as long mm -hmm. as you pass that background check. Uh, there's no waiting periods or, or a bunch of extra hoops to jump through. Whereas, uh, you know, across the border in New York or New Jersey from Pennsylvania, at least, um, the the process is pretty draconian, really. I mean, like you said, it took you 14 months just to get a, a shotgun, yes. not even a handgun. Yes. Um, and the funniest part is when I when I was doing my NJ FID just to be able to shoot alone at ranges, uh, just to get some handgun practice in, because you can't shoot handguns even without, a, I think, New York permit regardless uh, in New York. So mm -hmm. uh, I was like 35 days. This is like remarkable. It's wonderful. I don't even have to go into the police precinct to get my fingerprint. I, I, I could just get my fingerprint stunned and I didn't go anywhere. So it was like very surprising at how every other jurisdiction is better than New York. At least yeah. the, the way I see it, right? Even though some people don't think. Yeah, that. I mean, I think a, a lot of people, I you know, for instance, coming from uh, a more typical form of gun regulation uh, in Pennsylvania, Virginia, when I tried to get my D.C. carry permit initially uh, back when they were still May issue, uh, the process of having to go into the police station and, you know, fill out registration forms and have your finger fingerprints taken, it felt very much like being treated as a criminal. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I know it's, it's not like... Like having your fingerprints taken for concealed carry licenses is not completely uh, out of the ordinary. I think Florida does it as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if you've never been through that process, yeah. it really feels like oh, uh, you know, like like a criminal process. I mean, I think the other people getting their fingerprints taken, at least from the attitude of the person who was doing the fingerprinting when I was in there, uh, they probably were some sort of criminals. Right. Um, well, so well. I, you know, it's interesting that that difference in in culture uh, around how, how these things are regulated and how they're treated. Um, and I, you know, I wonder uh, too, like uh, what, how has your perspective changed since you went through that whole process? Has it changed at all? Um, you know, uh, what, what impact did going through 14 months to, to get a shotgun, you know, have on you? Oh, it's very annoying to, to say the least. Um, um, and it's, and you almost see there is always a partial logical basis for some of this stuff. I'm not, not to justify it, but it's like, oh, you need a safeguard person to to you know, call the cops if you're incapacitated or died, right? So, mm -hmm. which forms like a social proof, right? If you can't get someone just to do that, it's like, okay, you could be a little off. I think that was the original motivation about it instead of actually diving into your background, because honestly. The, the closest analogy to New York City's regime is probably Canada. Like, you got five-round long gun mag limits, 10-round 
handgun limits like the rest of the state, but also like Canada. Pretty much before Bruin, it was just premise only. So basically like Canada, you're transported into the range and back. Mm-hmm. Except we were allowed home defense, right, unlike Canada. But um, I like it really has um, made me skeptical of overly harsh uh, regulations. So obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, because, you know, you, you said at the beginning here that your initial reason for wanting to buy this gun was uh, the, the rash of anti-Asian hate crimes that occurred in 2021 right? right when you first went to to purchase right and uh you know it took 14 months before you could actually obtain the the thing that you were trying to get to protect yourself right from that situation right, right. and and even then you know it's a shotgun you can't carry it with you uh it'd be even harder to get a pistol uh, right in, right in new york right uh and even even harder still to get a, a permit before bruin and now now after bruin they've tried to make it uh, so that it's a, effectively impossible to carry it anywhere legally. Right. Uh, I don't know. Like, does that, uh, how's it, going it's, through that process? It's uh, really mixed you? because I think this is something that probably was informed by just growing up in New York City. I, mm-hmm. I feel I have taken a very, like a half European standard of like, oh, guns are a very fun hobby, fun sports shooting thing. So I could, mm-hmm. I could. I can empathize with Americans who feel like, oh, this is my, you know, my God, uh, my, you know, constitutional rights. I need this immediately. But as you can see, 14 months later, nothing has happened, right? I like the original impetus to do it was probably just like in the moment, you're like, oh man, I feel like I need something. But in the end, I didn't. I also live in a fairly safe area of New York and lived like 30 years of my life without really facing any real, you know, street crime. Which, yeah. uh, lucky for me, right? Obviously, there are those in New right. York who don't aren't as privileged, so I can understand why they would want to carry. Uh, it's sort of, well, do it's you like, feel like you? So you feel like maybe you were? Um, uh, I, I mean, do you do you feel like you you weren't right and want like that the concern was overdone in your mind when you went to buy the gun? Or I, no, I, I feel like the original concern could have been like not a hundred percent rational, right? It would be like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, statistically top floor apartment, right? Who's really going to do that, right? Um, But I think there are those in less privileged positions than myself, then they probably have much greater public safety, private safety concerns than I do, right? So now I'm now primarily interested in, hey, this is a really fun hobby. You know, you get to meet people. Shooting is obviously very fun. I think everyone Mm -hmm. in this (laughs) hobby can agree. So... um, so it's like I like I obviously hate having to go through this, right? But it's also like, yeah. am I? And I ugh, like I'm, I guess for you, it's you know yeah. you aren't you aren't living in that that uh, sort of day to day danger, right? Or you don't you don't feel like you are, right? Um, uh, but but uh, I imagine going uh, going through that process for people people who actually you know maybe are more exposed to criminal activity than than you know the neighborhood that you're in or or what have you. Uh, like, do you feel that the process makes sense for, oh, for, for it, them? I, it doesn't, no, it doesn't at all. Cause I, yeah. I like, it's, it's costly. I think for me, the, the shotgun permit was $140, 90 mm. for fingerprints, premise and carry. It's almost as much as, as some shotguns. Cost yeah. Yeah. I mean, themselves. and it's renewed, it, you pay it every three years too. So it's like, mm. if you want to get all, 
carry premise rifle permit, you're basically paying like 900 uh, every three years just to be yeah. able to keep your, I guess, collection or your, you know, your, your rights. Plus you have to go into the police station oh, fairly sure. regularly. Pay time process. off. And, yeah. um, so really the, it's, it's something that's not open to people who don't have the means. for No, it. for, oh, no, definitely not. I, and, um, I think they've only recently added language assistance on the li- on the licensing side. It was please right. email this email if you need language assistance. Otherwise mm-hmm. it's pretty. Yeah, um, so a lot of immigrants are shut out of it as well. Right. And if I've seen during 2021, during the whole anti-Asian thing, there was like a bunch of consulting services in the Chinatown areas. They were like gouging people too. They were like, we will give you a thousand dollars. Just you pay us a thousand dollars just to have us fill this out for you. Right. And I'm like, wow, this is because it's not even guaranteed at the time too. So it's like, wow. Yeah. What a grift. Yeah. Uh, that's awful. Yeah. Uh, but, so uh, to lighten things up a little bit, what have you been? What have you been doing with the shotgun? What are you, you know, you're you're target shooting. Are you competing at all? Well, taking classes. Uh, primarily target shooting. I've took. I've taken that. Um, the a shotgun class upstate at Blue Mountain Range, which is Westchester. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's public land, um, and it's a very very fun course. I think we shot about two hundred rounds of uh, shells, which is like the most I've ever shot out of a shotgun for for. It's a, a lot of rounds. Yeah, yeah in one day too. Especially uh, 12 gauge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had a pretty <laughs> sore shoulder. Sore shoulder afterwards. <laughs> but the main and I'm the main issue is we're we're um, per we're purchased rationed, like so we can register one long gun every 90 days. Handguns are the same, but you gotta bring it mm-hmm. into one PP for inspection. And I'm still waiting on my handgun permit. Um but how long has that been? Ah, uh, that's I've applied at the same time. They're saying it's gonna take oh, about wow. twenty-three to twenty-four months uh, in total for the home possession permit on premise. right delayed is a right denied is yeah. uh, sort of an old saying yeah but uh, i guess it doesn't apply anymore, and so. god knows how long it's going to take to carry because you had you had everyone applied after and try to get in before the right. september 1st thing right. um so my plan is obviously i want to shoot at least like once a month but the main issue is i gotta start with the new law until it's enjoined i basically have to uber to the range i'm, at, I'm a member at in manhattan can't take the mm-hmm. subway um, yeah. anymore. It used to be that you right. could transport it on the subway, unlocked. I mean, locked and unloaded, just like in England, which is the funniest part. Right. Now we're now we're actually more strict in England because I think mean, because even London lets you transport long guns, locks. In yeah, there case. was a pretty big, uh, pretty big re- overreaction <laughs> in there in New York. Yeah. Uh, of course, I don't think that law is going to survive for very long. Oh, for sure. So <laughs> Thank, I mean, hasn't been blocked yet. So, but yeah. Well, hopefully soon, because I definitely don't want to pay like $130 round trip just to go to the range every time. Oh, it will really oh put a damper on this hobby. Yeah. Because it's already expensive, like right. ammo on its own. Like, Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, boy. Uh, well, uh, so uh, so what was it that got you uh, into the reload? You know, you're a relatively new gun owner here. What, what? How did you come across this and why did you decide to join? I think I, uh, I forgot. I think it was sort of like a combination of things I saw. I, w- I think I remember either seeing you on a Vox podcast or on a mm. other, like you had, they had both uh, someone from the trace and from the reload together. I forgot if that was Vox or something uh, else. It was Megan Kelly. Right. Oh yeah. That. Megan yeah. Kelly's podcast. But I was Vox. also on the Vox. Right. 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 So. Um, so it just sounded like you had a very measured take on things. Mm. Like so one thing I find a little annoying about like the, I said, I guess gun tube, as you want to call it, 
mm-hmm. is there's a lot of um, uh, clickbait hot or takes. hot takes, clickbait, yeah. um, or <laughs> some people who clearly don't read like which is something i've noticed a lot on the, some of the spaces i'm on like people just don't read the statutes or or uh, they can't seem to read right I, I, as as horrible yeah. as that sounds some people no no it's uh, yeah. sensationalism really sells these days so. yeah so a measure a takes yeah measure takes i then you know went to your site saw some of your articles and i'm like eh, you know this is probably the place for me you know, and oh, I great. decided to just helps throw 10 bucks uh, your, you guys' way because it's like, well, like it's a coffee a day, barely. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. You know, that's what we try to go for, be the more sober, serious sort of approach to this stuff. And I do think that there are not a lot of other options for that out there. We're not the only ones, I'm sure, right. uh, of course. But of course. But I, uh, I think we've, uh, we've tried to zero in on that. Right. And uh, I'm glad to hear that that's uh, that's what appealed to you. And uh, and we really appreciate you coming on and, and just talking to us a little bit, giving us some insight into, you know, another Reload member. And and, uh, you know, we've got such a diverse group of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and motivations and and areas of the country too. you know, from right. New York City to, uh, you know, Tennessee to Virginia, D.C., Pennsylvania, you know, all over the place. It's really um, inspiring to uh to me that that so many people have, are interested in this kind of work um uh because you know it, it is something that you don't find in major media very often or frankly in in a lot of gun media either so right. it's uh, it's very like if sometimes when you read mainstream news about these laws <laughs> it's just like oh they don't even read the laws either so no uh, they would. They don't understand anything about gun ownership. It seems, yeah. uh, for the for the most part, in major outlets. I mean, they just don't have. A, I think a large part of it is there's there's no focus on it. It's not a beat that most media outlets cover as okay. as a beat. You know, something right. to be focused on. Uh, and so usually you get a lot of people cu- writing about gun stories or gun laws who have never covered that before. Right. Uh, and so you get a lot, a lot of mistakes right. and misunderstandings. Right. Um, but so that's where we try to be a little different, uh, informed and independent. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing we try to focus on being so. Okay. Uh, but hey, we really appreciate you coming on um, and and supporting the work that we do. So uh, you know, if if anyone listening wants to support our work as well, they can head over to reload.com and pick up a membership today. You'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, you'll get this podcast a day early and you'll get the opportunity to appear on the podcast, just like Alan here. Uh, and we love doing these segments. So if you're already a member, make sure you just reply to your Sunday exclusive newsletter for members. Uh, just letting us know that you want to come on and we'll, we'll have you on the show. Uh, but, but that's it for now. We're, we're, we're headed out and we'll see you guys again next week.